1: Go episode six hundred eleven of the Al Goldie podcast. It is Monday, July seventeenth, two thousand twenty-three, and the week has arrived. This is not any week. This is the week. T H E E E E (laughs) week. This is the week during which we anticipate NFL owners approving the sale of the commanders from Dan and Tanya Snyder to the Josh Harris group. This Thursday, July 20th, is the oh-so-long-anticipated day. Uh, Now, don't worry. We are not assuming anything. We are not planting the flag of victory before victory is officially attained. We are not counting our chickens before they hatch, but we are acknowledging the reality of the situation. And that reality is that... The nightmare that has been Dan Snyder owning the NFL team of Washington DC for 24 plus years is about to end. We're not there yet, but we are. (laughs) Wait for it. Close.
2: It means you're close.
1: That is correct, as the Denny's former bestie, former Redskins executive Bruce Allen, a.k.a. Brucifer, once said, it means you're close. Hello and welcome to this Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, and hello and welcome to a most special week in the history of of Washington, D.C. sports. You've heard the phrase Christmas in July. (laughs) Well, NFL owners this Thursday, hopefully, mercifully approving the sale of the commanders, most definitely would qualify as uh, Christmas in July. Ho, ho, ho. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Josh is coming to town. And we cannot wait. Uh, Next segment, I have a great guest for you, Commander's Insider Nikki Javala of The Washington Post. Uh, Nikki lately has had a lot of very good reporting on the sale of the team. We are going to discuss where we are with the sale of what she and NFL Insider Mark Maskey of The Washington Post had in a report that came out this past Thursday morning. And what was in that report was the quoting of an unnamed source saying that there were complications with the finalizing of the sale of the commander. So we will explore that. Uh, We will get Nikki's intel on what the heck is happening with the Mary Jo White investigation, which has been going on for 17 months. Uh, Nikki has a strong opinion on what Josh Harris is going to bring to the commanders in terms of one of my favorite topics, analytics. Uh, Wait until you hear that. And we will talk about quarterback Sam Howell and a key, but I think underrated aspect of Sam's upcoming season, the new quarterbacks coach, Tavita Pritchard. Uh, Nikki Javala, very smart, very insightful, very well-connected, and she's coming up next segment. Also on the show, I have a lot for you on the Nationals and the Orioles of what went down with those teams over the weekend. With each team beginning, it's a post-All-Star break portion of the season. The Nats lost two or three games at the St. Louis Cardinals in a series in which all three games had a rain delay. Uh, heck, the first game got suspended due to rain. Uh, the Nats in this series, bad pitching, but some pretty good hitting, especially by the team's new regular number one batter, shortstop C.J. Abrams. Abrams is thriving in this new role, although also with the Nats over the weekend, some rough injury news, including a concerning situation with reliever Hunter Harvey. And then with the O's, their surge continues, man. If you are an Orioles fan, how are you not super pumped right now? They now have won eight consecutive games, a three-game sweep of the National League wildcard leading Miami Marlins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, although the Marlins are no longer leading the National League wildcard race, not after this series. And the O's, they now are just one game behind the Tampa Bay Rays for the best record in the American League and for first place in the American League East. So much good stuff with the O's to go over. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Connor Davis on the man being positioned to be the Commanders QB1 for this coming season. Sam Howell writes Connor I've always been pessimistic towards this team and have always read the Surgeon General's warning before getting too high on the upcoming season. With the aura of self destruction hopefully dissipating over the next few years, I am getting more optimistic about this team, especially Sam Howell. However, the one knock on him is this fifth round pick stink that he can't escape. That's where my issue with the media is on this. Ben Standing had an article in which he reviewed the number of day three quarterbacks who have not made it. Uh, This is just simple data. It's not analytics. It's just a who made it and who didn't. But that's why I think it's completely wrong to just use this data on whether a guy is going to make it. Why a day three quarterback does or doesn't make it is not determined by historical chances. We just saw Brock Purdy, the last pick of the draft, make it to the NFC championship game. So much of whether a draft pick hits is the person himself, also the situation he finds himself in. Sam seems to have a lot of traits that we haven't had in a quarterback in a long time, probably since Kirk Cousins. (laughs) Sam is not loud or outspoken, and he doesn't think that he has arrived like RG3 did. Sam sounds like a gunslinger, unlike Alex Smith. Sam is an immature, like Dwayne Haskins was. Sam has arm talent, unlike Taylor Heineke. And unlike all of these quarterbacks who we've cycled through over the past decade, Sam finds himself in the best situation of them all, an offense led by Eric Bieniemy, and most importantly, an organization soon to not be led by Dan Snyder. So why not howl? and why not this team? It's about time that we start being a bit more optimistic. On a side note, I've expressed my hatred towards the commander's name, and I really wish we were the Red Wolves with a franchise quarterback with the last name of Howell. And we could howl every time he throws a touchdown. That would be perfect. <laughs> uh, thank you for the email, Connor. Uh, so I on this podcast have talked about the fifth round thing with Sam Howell quite a bit. And you know, it's not an either or thing. It is true that the overwhelming majority of non-first round quarterbacks, uh, to say nothing of day three quarterbacks, do not become good NFL quarterbacks. There's no denying that. There's no getting around that. And this is a reality that even the biggest Sam Howell fan should acknowledge. Yes, every situation is different, but the point of large sample sizes is that they give you a general indication of what has happened and what to expect. However, it's also true that Sam Howell, for various reasons, isn't like most non-first-round quarterbacks. And so there are things about him that give me, and I know many of you, the sense of, hey, maybe, just maybe, he is one of the rare non-first-round quarterbacks who hits In a significant way. Most non-first round quarterbacks were never viewed as potential number one overall pick. Sam Howell was, although uh, that was in the 2021 offseason. But even in that 2022 draft, there were plenty of reputable people slash outlets that were high on Sam Howell. Uh, Sam on the pro football focus big board for the 2022 draft was the number 34 overall player. Sam on the big board of then ESPN NFL draft analyst Todd McShay for the 2022 draft was the number 50 overall player. And don't forget this, uh, a friend of this podcast, Commander's Insider John Kime of ESPN. He, in a piece that came out this past May 6th, revealed that the Commanders had a consensus second round grade on Sam Howell in the 2022 draft, in which, of course, the team took him in the fifth round with the number 144 overall pick in the draft. Uh, John quote, according to sources with knowledge of the commander's draft process, Washington scouts gave him a grade that equated to a second round pick. Some of them gave him a third round equivalent, but others had him in the late first, end quote. So to me, just lumping Sam Howell in, with all of these other non first round quarterbacks, especially with all of these other day three quarterbacks, is wrong. Uh, you gotta factor in the context. And of course, the context guarantees nothing, okay? Sam Howell this coming season could be terrible, but he also could be good, <laughs> maybe even very good. Uh, we shall see. Email from Joe Rosnowski about this podcast, writes, Joe, I just noticed that your pod now is available on Amazon Music. Congratulations on adding a major platform to the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks for all of your hard work. Uh, Well, thank you for that, Joe. So I'm not sure if the podcast being available on Amazon Music is new or not, but yeah, the podcast is available on Amazon Music. There are a lot of ways that you can get uh, this podcast. Actually, one of the ways is going away. Stitcher is going away. Uh, Stitcher is being shut down on August 29th. Uh, Stitcher is owned by SiriusXM, in case you're curious. Uh, but you know most people who listen to this podcast uh, do listen via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Those are the big three means of listening to podcasts in this country. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. But there also are a number of other ways to listen to this podcast. Uh, Overcast is a way. Pocket Casts is a way. Uh, and Amazon Music is a way. The beauty of the podcast, of course, is that you can get it in any number of ways and you can listen wherever you want, whenever you want. The podcast conforms to you, the podcast works for you, uh, just like the great law firm of Paulson and Nace will work for you. If you have a case, you should contact Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace is dedicated to promoting the rights of seriously injured persons and their families. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is widely respected throughout Washington, D.C. and West Virginia for the firm's accomplishments both in and out of courtrooms, Chris Nace and Matt Nace are dedicated trial attorneys who do not balk in the face of large insurance companies or well-known businesses that have had practices or products that are directly related to the root of your harm. Uh, Paulson and Nace does not accept low settlement offers that benefit the people who cause clients harm more than the offers benefit the clients. This is because Paulson and Nace is not afraid to take a case to trial, and that's because Paulson and Nace wins trials. Paulson and Nace has secured millions of dollars in verdict and settlement amounts for clients to better enable them to care for themselves and their families. Paulson and Nace will fight for you and win for you. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Call Paulson and Nace at 202 902 7611. That's 202 902 7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. can also visit PaulsonAndace.com. That's PaulsonAndace.com. Just make sure that you tell PaulsonAndace that Al Galdi sent you. PaulsonAndace, if you have a case, contact PaulsonAndace. Well, this episode of the podcast is from Monday, July 17th. The next 10 days are going to be quite the ride uh, for us as Commanders fans. So this Thursday, July 20th, of course, we have the expected vote by NFL owners on the sale of the team by Dan and Tanya Snyder to the Josh Harris Group. Uh, I've been told by someone in the know that this Friday, July 21st, could include a press conference. For the Josh Harris group. Uh, Also, this Friday, July 21st, is rookies being due to report for Commanders Training Camp. Uh, Then we on Tuesday, July 25th, have veterans being due to report for Commanders Training Camp. And then we on Thursday, July 27th, have the first practice of Commanders Training Camp. A lot be happening with our football team right now. And someone who is all over all of this is the woman who joins me now, Commanders Insider Nikki Javala. Of the Washington Post, uh, Nikki does a tremendous job covering the team. Had a major report that came out this past Thursday morning, July thirteenth, headline: "Quote Legal Snags Between NFL, comma, Snyder Threaten to Complicate Commanders Sale." End quote. You can follow Nikki on Twitter at Nikki Javala, and Javala is spelled J H A B V A L A. You know, Nikki, with this team, we of course have. The normal football stuff, and then we have also all of the non-football stuff, uh, like the sale and the controversies and (laughs) the investigations. Uh, I would think that covering this team is almost like covering two teams, almost like having two beats. Am I correct in thinking that?
3: Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's all consuming, but I love it. So you know, when you're lucky enough to have a job that doesn't feel like work, it's it's fine. So, but yeah, it's it's there's been a lot happening the last, last few years, really. (laughs) So
4: (laughs) yeah,
1: no doubt about that. So you and NFL insider Mark Maskey of the Washington Post had the report that came out this past Thursday morning, quoting an unnamed source as saying that there were complications with the uh, finalizing of the sale of the commander, specifically the willingness of Dan Snyder and his family to indemnify the NFL and its owners against liability related to the John Gruden lawsuit against the league and NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. As we are beginning this week, you know, this potentially monumental week in Washington, D.C. sports history, is the right way to look at this Thursday, yeah, the sale is going to get approved, or hey, until we cross that goal line, we should not be assuming anything?
3: Both, if that's possible. Um, I do think it'll happen. I think there's motivation from both sides to get it done, Um, especially the league side. Uh, I I think they really want this to be final and to start a new chapter in Washington and to get things moving there. Um, But as we've seen throughout this process, and it's been a long one, there have been hiccups along the way, and there's there's one right now. I, I do think they'll ultimately resolve it, but it's an issue. It's a legal issue right now that they're gonna have to resolve. Um, I've kind of always been of the mind with pro sports in general that deadlines spur action, whether it's the trade deadline free agency or uh, ratification vote. I, I think they'll ultimately um, come to an agreement there and move forward. But until then, I guess it's kind of, we'll see.
1: Regarding this notion of Dan Snyder and his family indemnifying the NFL and its owners against liability related to the John Gruden lawsuit against the league and Roderick and Dell, it seems to me that on this item, Dan actually has the leverage and that he doesn't have to provide this indemnity. And if you're the NFL, you really do just want to get this sale done. Who do you see as having the leverage in this circumstance?
3: Yeah, I I think he does have a little bit of leverage, and he knows it, and he's using it here, Um, maybe to get some last minute concessions from the NFL um, before selling. Um, But you know, it. I I think it's it's very possible this could be more of a. My colleague Martin Massey. kind of mentioned this in our, our back and forth over the last few days as this could be more of a symbolism thing of neither side wants to settle or you know give any show of an admission of guilt in this instance. And this is related to the Luke the leaked John Gruden emails um that ultimately led to his resignation and launched the House committees investigation, which led to a cascade of events that ultimately led us here. Um, So it's, it's related to the indemnification. And when we talk about indemnification, there's always two parts. It's well, there's multiple parts, but with Dan Snyder in the league, it's in this instance, it's Dan doesn't want to indemnify the league related to matters with the Gruden emails. Um, And according to the uh, source we spoke to, he's unwilling to sign an affidavit saying he didn't release, he didn't leak the emails, whereas before he was willing to, so um, they got to work through those issues. Um, it may seem minor compared to all the other issues they had to work through initially to get to this point. Um, we were told at the March meetings um, that they were pretty much, they were 95% done on indemnification. There are again, multiple parts to that, but you know, this is one little, no, I shouldn't say little, this is a hang up that they got to resolve.
1: If the sale of the commanders does get approved by NFL owners on Thursday, uh, then what? (laughs) You know, like now what? Uh, Do you think that things with the team starting on, say, Friday actually start to become, uh, dare I say, semi-normal? Do you think that there still is going to be a lot of non-football stuff out there on the team? What do you think the immediate post-sale world for the team will be like?
3: Yeah, I don't think anything happens overnight. But, you know, say the owners ratify, they approve the the sale on Thursday, they still gotta close. It's like a, you know, like any deal, like you close on a house. I would imagine that's Friday, if not Monday. That's the official handing over the keys. Um, But then there's still the lingering issues of the Mary Jo White report. Um, The US Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Virginia is still investigating. There's still the pending investigation from um, the Attorney General of Virginia. So you got those three issues still out there. Um, and then, as far as Harris's group, you know, we've we've been told that he won't make significant change immediately. You know, what constitutes immediately? We'll see. Does that mean he, he could make change in you know the first couple months? I think a lot of that depends on their performance. If they start out like going four, I think people could worry about jobs certainly. Um, but it, from what we've been told, you know, president Jason Wright, will get at least a year to prove himself. Um, and they're going to use that first season to really assess the business operations, how things are running on the football side and, you know, kind of what they want to do to, to really get the house in order. And then of course you got stadium stuff down the pipeline and, um, so many other things with, you know, roster changes, coaching how the future there. Um, so normal. Maybe not as many investigations, but be, you hope anyway, um, but there's still going to be plenty going on.
1: You just made a key point. Even if the sale of the commanders gets approved by NFL owners on Thursday, the sale still will not be totally done. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, they still got to close on it. And that, that'll, that'll happen pretty quickly from what I've heard. Um, so that, that could be Friday. I that's all done with the attorneys, I mean especially with the Snyders living in london i I don't think they'd go out there to do it in person, so that'll be done behind closed doors, basically.
1: You mentioned the Mary Jo White investigation. (laughs) The Mary Jo White investigation was announced in February 2022. We're now well into July 2023 and still have not received a report on the investigation or even the findings of the investigation. And we're now just days away from Dan Snyder being done as Washington owner. Is this investigation still going on? Has the investigation long been completed and the NFL is just holding on to the findings slash report? What's going on here?
3: No, I, I think I, I actually think she's doing a very professional and thorough job on this from everything I've heard, um, you know, the, I, from what I've heard and we're still kind of working through this is, um, you know, they were they were still doing interviews, you know, in recent weeks. So I think they're close. I would imagine it comes out soon um does it come out before the sale i don't know um i could see it coming out after especially if you know they don't particularly want roger goodell you know answering a bunch of questions on the mary joe white report in minnesota on thursday um but i certainly think it's close i can't imagine it's gonna be if it's after the sale it's too far after um they want this resolved no doubt
1: much more with Nikki Javala in moments. I'm going to next bring up a few things. She last week tweeted having to do with the Commander Stadium situation, but... Did you know that a sponsor of this podcast, Turf Center Lawns, installed the original Bermuda Grass Field at FedEx Field when it opened as Jack Kincook Stadium in 1997, and it was not the uh, problem uh, that the stadium is today. Uh, Turf Center Lawns offers a variety of residential and commercial landscaping services. It is a local, multi-generational family business serving Maryland, Virginia, And Washington, D.C., Turf Center Lawns offers lawn care programs that will make and keep your lawn lush and green. Uh, Turf Center Lawns is outstanding at handling water problems. Intense summer storms can cause water and drainage problems for your home or business. Turf Center Lawns offers affordable and effective grading-based drainage solutions to prevent flooding, erosion, and wet basements and crawl spaces. Uh, Also, if you are a coach, an athletic director, a booster, no. That Turf Center Lawns can create, improve, and/or maintain athletic fields. Uh, turf Center Lawns will give you and your team a professional natural grass athletic field and performs maintenance with a specializing in Bermuda grass fields. Uh, turf Center Lawns installed the original Bermuda grass fields at a number of major venues. I mentioned FedEx Field. Also, Turf Center Lawns installed the original Bermuda grass fields at Prince George's County Stadium, home of the Orioles, Double affiliate, the Bowie Bay Sox, uh, and at. Ar- Arthur W. Purdue Stadium, home of the Orioles' low-A affiliate, the Delmarva Shorebirds. Uh, Turf Center Lawns also installs and rebuilds baseball and softball infields, batting cages, home putting greens, even bocce courts. <laughs> if you have landscaping needs, drainage issues, or athletic field needs, contact Turf Center Lawns. Uh, consultations and estimates are free. You have nothing to lose. Call 301 301- or visit turfcenterlawns.com. That's 301-384-9300 or visit turfcenterlawns.com. And make sure that you tell Turf Center Lawns that Al Galdi sent you. Uh, The Turf Center Lawns team is comprised of experts in their field. Uh, They share a deep commitment to exceed customer expectations on every job, whether large or small. Look, when you hire Turf Center Lawns, your satisfaction is is guaranteed. Call 301-384-9300 or visit turfcenterlawns.com. That's 301-384-9300 or turfcenterlawns.com. And make sure that you tell Turf Center Lawns that Al Galdi sent you. More now with Commander's Insider, Nikki Javala of the Washington Post. So the stadium situation. Uh, You've had a few notable tweets in recent days. First of all, uh, this past Tuesday evening, July 11th, Tweeted a photo of documentation for the land on which FedEx Field sits. Bottom line, what the commanders have is a covenant, not a lease, to play home games at FedEx Field until September 13th, 2027. The team can play home games at the stadium after that date, but can't play home games elsewhere before that date. Uh, Additionally, you last Monday afternoon, July 10th, tweeted a photo of documentation of the sale of the land that held the old Redskins Park, uh, that land being in Herndon, Virginia. The land is about eight acres, but sold for $25 million. The team's current facility in Ashburn, Virginia, is on land of about 162 acres. You do the math, The Josh Harris group could be looking at hundreds of millions of dollars from a sale of the land uh, to help fund the new stadium and new team facility.
3: I live out here in Sterling, so I'm I'm surrounded by these massive data
4: centers.
3: (laughs) And I mean, I swear, it feels like every day a new one pops up. And they're enormous, but the land they sit on are worth a ton. Um, And the land their practice facility in Ashburn sits on is on the corner of Loudoun County Parkway and I think it's Gloucester. I mean, it's, it's gotta be at least worth half a billion dollars, um, just based on the value of nearby properties. Um, so yeah, it's, it's worth a ton. I could totally see, um, the group wanting to basically cash out while, while the market is hot for that. Um, and then decide where they want to put a new facility, either if it's going to be connected to the stadium or somewhere else. But, That's kind of the business of the NFL anymore is it's part production, entertainment, football, but it's also becoming a really booming real estate business too with these, with these stadiums, these mixed use developments, the practice facilities that are to the nines. I mean, I don't know if you guys, if you've seen quarterback, the new Netflix series, they show them uh, the Vikings practice facility. It's, it's incredible Um, they're kind of like mini stadiums, um, in themselves. So that that's another piece of the puzzle that Josh's group will have to decide is, is where do they want to put this practice facility? And, you know, do they build that before they finalize the stadium, et cetera. But there's a lot of money to be made money to be spent on the, on the stadium and practice facility.
1: It's funny that you brought up the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, we know that they now are big on analytics with uh, Kwesi Adolfo Mensa as general manager. Uh, We also know that Josh Harris is managing partner of the Philadelphia 76ers and managing partner of the New Jersey Devils, has done a lot to build up those organizations in the realm of analytics. Do you think that Harris will attempt to turn the commanders into a team at the forefront of uh, the analytics movement in the NFL? I would love for that to be the case. Do you think that it will be the case?
3: Oh, I think it will absolutely change. I mean, look at what he's done with the Sixers, with the Devils. Um, he's very progressive on that front. I mean, he's a private equity guy. He believes in data, clearly. He's a business guy. Like, it's whatever will give him the best opportunity to help this franchise win. Um, So I think it will absolutely become a big part of it. And I think it's necessary. You know, I, I think the debate over analytics, it's not turning to advanced stats or, you know, turning football into solely a numbers game. It's giving the team an extra tool to to help them win. I also think a big part of that is, is the sports medicine component, the athlete care component. Um, I think, you know, everybody remembers a couple of years ago when they were, um, another fun moment in commander's history <laughs> when the head athletic trainer was, um, being investigated by the DEA only in Ashburn. Um, <laughs> and they were down trainers. I mean, I, I, I don't think I mean, one, you hope to never see an investigation like that again, but like in terms of a shortage of, um, trainers or anything like that, I, I think that's another hallmark of Josh Harris's teams is they really are big on innovation and, um, finding new ways to help players recover and giving them all the resources they need. And I, I think it will be well received by players, um, But I think that's another area where they could really step things up. And they they do have a pretty robust group now, but I I think it it could stand to grow even, even more.
1: What will forever crack me up about the Ryan Vermillion mess is that, okay, October 1st, 2021, the DEA and the Loudoun County Sheriff's Department conducted searches at Washington's practice facility. and at Vermilion's residence. Also, on that day <laughs> was that night at Nationals Park being DEA night. Like, you, yes. <laughs> you, you can't make this stuff up. Like, that's unbelievable to me. Like, what are the odds of something like that? I
3: but, know. I, half the DEA was celebrating at the game <laughs> in the rest, the aspirin facility.
1: <laughs> that, that is so crazy to me that that
3: it's, it's, yeah. was I, the case fun
1: memories. Yeah, for sure. I I do have just a few actual football questions. Imagine that. Uh, Sam Howell, you talk to a lot of people in and around the NFL. When the subject of the commander's positioning, Sam, to be their QB1 for this coming season comes up, is the prevailing reaction one of, what the heck are they doing? Or is the prevailing reaction more one of, yeah, I get what they're doing? I
3: think now... um as people get to know him more, you kind of see how he handles himself off-field. You got to see what he could do in OTAs, which is I, a non-padded workout, so you got to take it from what it is. Um, I, I think he's the kind of player that gives fans a little bit of hope. You know, this is the kid they drafted. You don't know a ton about him, but there's plenty of potential, so you can kind of pin your hopes on that, that he can become um, – you know, a a guy for the future, you know, he hasn't given a total reason that he hasn't become that. So I I think that's good for the fan base now. And it's, you know, for better or worse, it's a, it's a lot of pressure on the young kid. And I I have to call him a kid. Sorry, Sam, Howell, because he makes me feel so old, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but you know, he's, he started and played only one game and now he's essentially being asked to be the savior for the franchise, you know? How many jobs ride on his performance? No pressure, but that's, that's the reality of, of the league, I guess.
1: That's a great point. Uh, final question. So much conversation this offseason about the commander's new assistant head coach slash offensive coordinator, Eric Bienemi, but the team also has a new quarterbacks coach in Tavita Pritchard. Uh, This is his first NFL coaching job. He was with Stanford from 2006 through 2022 as first a player and then a coach. He was a quarterback for Stanford 2006 through 2009, uh, then was a coach for Stanford 2010 through 2022, including being Stanford's offensive coordinator from 2018 through 2022. You and June wrote an in-depth article about Pritchard. Uh, what were your biggest takeaways in putting together that piece? Because you certainly could argue that Pritchard's presence matters as much as the enemy's presence when it comes to Sam Howell.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to think this is the guy that's in the year of Sam Howell. Um, And I, I think his history is really interesting. You know, he's a quarterback at Stanford, you know, spent his the entirety of his coaching career thus far at Stanford. He knows the system having played in it or some version of it with, Harbaugh and David Shaw. Um, you know, he 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 was a quarterback for that famous win over USC. Um that was a heck of a game. Ultimately lost the job to some dude named Andrew Luck. I don't I don't know how he lost the job to that guy, <laughs> but um so I mean the, he he's you know, he you go through sort of the I guess adversity of that. Um And dealing with that so he can kind of relate to a lot of the players of, you know, going through a quarterback competition, losing a quarterback competition, learning to be a backup, learning to be a starter. Um, And I thought what was really interesting about his past was he was, he sort of became an unofficial quarterbacks coach by really being a good backup to andrew luck i mean he wore the headset he talked to andrew luck and i i thought that showed a lot about who he was as um a teammate a coach a player really understood the position he also spent two years on the defensive side so he could really explain to players from um that side of the ball which i think is huge i think a lot of players come into the league and Certainly, they know the game. They're incredibly talented, but do they really understand the nuances of defenses and what they're seeing? I, I think having a coach at the pro level who can really break it down and explain it is is huge, especially for a young quarterback like Sam Howell. So, I, to me, he's a really intriguing hire. Um, really interesting guy. I, you know, I I agree with you. I think he, like the enemy, like Sam Howell, um, you know, could or, or is a really key piece to this offense and this team overall.
1: All right. Commanders insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post. Nikki, very nice talking with you. Uh, very happy that you're doing well and all the best.
3: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: Great stuff from Nikki Javala as uh, we embark on a big week for the Commanders. And if you have a big event that you're planning, know that Catering by Uptown is the DMV's number one catering service. Catering by Uptown, it is a family business that prides itself on its signature dishes and flawless presentations, and Catering by Uptown goes beyond just food. Catering by Uptown offers personalized consultation and event planning assistance that are outstanding, including venue coordination, custom catering menu selection from over a thousand delicious dish selections, and a day of event coordinator who will make sure that everything runs smoothly. From putting together and executing a menu, to picking linens, to selecting an excellent florist, Catering by Uptown is committed to meeting your needs and exceeding your expectations. Whether you're having a wedding or a corporate event, an intimate gathering or a gala, Catering by Uptown is the way to go. Visit cateringbyuptown.com and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Also know this, Catering by Uptown is looking for summer help uh, specifically for the event waitstaff. No experience is necessary and you get paid in-house training. A great opportunity if you're looking for summer work visit cateringbyuptown.com. That's cateringbyuptown.com. And make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Well, you know the saying, when it rains, it pours? Uh, It has been pouring a whole lot (laughs) on the Nationals lately. The Nats now have dealt with a rain delay in five of the team's last seven games, including in all three games of a series in which the Nats lost two or three games at the St. Louis Cardinals over the weekend. Uh, Not a banner start to the post-All-Star break portion of the Nats season. Game one of the series was a 7-5, 10-inning win in a rain-suspended game that started on Friday night uh, and was completed on Saturday afternoon. This was a game in which the Nats blew a 5-4 eighth-inning lead. This also was a game in which the Nats in the top of the fifth scored three runs despite not registering a single hit. Uh, The three runs came on two walks, two stolen bases, three Cardinals errors, and a wild pitch. Uh, Then game two of the series, Saturday night, a 9-6 loss in a game in which the Nats did overcome a 4-0 third inning deficit and in a game for which the start was delayed by rain for an hour and five minutes. And then game three of the series, Sunday afternoon, an 8-4 loss in a game plagued by a rain delay of 38 minutes. The Nats now are 37-56, and 56, second worst record in the National League. The Cardinals, by the way, have the third worst record in the National League. Before we do more on the actual games for the Nats over the weekend, we do have two developing injury situations for the Nats, and these situations involve two trade chips in reliever Hunter Harvey and third baseman Jamer Candelario. So the 2023 MLB trade deadline is on August 1st. Uh, The Nats, as a rebuilding team, uh, need to continue to add to their inventory of prospects. And so that trade deadline day is a big day for the Nats. And who exactly the Nats are going to be able to trade uh, is hard to tell. But what's happening with Hunter Harvey and Jamer Candelario right now is that good uh, for those guys' trade value. So Hunter Harvey, he on Saturday afternoon, in the conclusion of the 7-5-10 inning win in the rain suspended game, tossed a perfect bottom of the 10th. But His velocity was down, and Nats manager Davey Martinez in a pregame session with reporters on Sunday afternoon revealed that Harvey reported having felt soreness in his right forearm and right triceps. Uh, That was not what you wanted to hear if you're a Nats fan, especially given Harvey's injury history. Now, an x-ray on Harvey did come back clean, but Davey during his postgame session with reporters on Sunday said that Harvey was headed back to Washington, D.C. to get an MRI exam and uh, Hunter Harvey pretty clearly is set to be out for at least a little while. The Nats' next series is at the Chicago Cubs. Harvey on Sunday going back to D.C. as opposed to going to Chicago, uh, that tells you that Harvey pretty clearly is set to be out for at least a little while. The injury history of Hunter Harvey is a mile long. The guy has incredible arm talent. He is a flamethrower, but he just has not been able to stay healthy. The Orioles took... Hunter Harvey out of a high school in North Carolina with the number 22 overall pick in the 2013 MLB draft. This season still is just his age 28 season. The guy got drafted a decade ago and yet still is in just his age 28 season. But Harvey's eight plus years with the O's were marked by one injury after another. Harvey missed the entire 2015 season due to a right elbow strain. Harvey underwent Tommy John surgery in July 2016. Harvey in 2018 dealt with right elbow discomfort and a right shoulder problem. Harvey in August 2019 made his Major League regular season debut, looked really good over his first six appearances, but he then pitched in one game the rest of the season due to right bicep soreness. Harvey in an exhibition game on March 12th, 2021 threw just one pitch and then left the game due to a left oblique injury. He ended up being on the Orioles' 60-day injured list from March 16, 2021 to June 4th, 2021. The O's on July 2nd, 2021 put Harvey on the 10-day injured list with a right lat strain. The O's on September 7th, 2021 moved Harvey to the 60-day IL due to him having suffered a right tricep strain while pitching for AAA Norfolk. It has been one injury after another for Hunter Harvey. Uh, I'm hoping for the best for the guy uh, with this latest situation, but I mean, it's hard to be super optimistic with his health given that injury history. You know, with Hunter Harvey, in a lot of ways, you're just waiting for the next injury. Uh, and then Jamer Candelario, he in that 7-5-10 inning win at the Cardinals in the rain suspended game, was at starting third baseman and number three batter. He in the top of the first on Friday night struck out swinging on nine pitches for the third out, but then left the game due to a right thumb bone bruise that he suffered during a defensive drill on Friday afternoon. And Candelario did not play in either of the final two games of the series. Candelario for the 8-4 loss at the Cardinals on Sunday afternoon was to be the Nats starting third baseman, and number three batter, but his uh, pregame testing of the right thumb did not go well. And so he was a late scratch uh, from the lineup. It has been a rough last few weeks for Jamer Candelario physically. He had a 9-2 loss to the Cincinnati Reds at Nationals Park on July 5th, hurt his other thumb, his left thumb, and Candelario in a 5-4-10 inning loss to the Reds at Nationals Park on July 6th, hurt his right knee, causing him to miss a game. Uh, The Nats, in losing two or three games at the Cardinals, were decent offensively, but leading the way was a guy who was a whole lot more than just decent in this series. The Nats' new leadoff batter, C.J. Abrams, uh, as we have talked about on this podcast, what matters the most with the Nats this season in terms of the team's games is not the results of those games, but how potential building blocks like Abrams do. Well, Abrams is thriving in this role as a leadoff batter. Uh, he in this series was an at starting shortstop and number one batter in each of the three games. And he, over the three games, went a combined six for 13 with a homer, a triple, a double, and three singles. And... He went 2-for-2 two two on stolen bases. Uh, that 7-5-10 inning win in the rain suspended game, Abrams went 2-for-5 with two leadoff singles and went 2-for-2 two two on stolen bases. The 9-6 loss on Saturday night, Abrams went 2-for-4 with a solo homer and a single. He had a Nats' two-run third, had a two-out solo homer to right field on a 1-2 pitch. To cut the Nats' deficit to 4-2, the homer went a projected 408 feet per stat cast and the 8-4 loss on Sunday afternoon, Abrams went two for four with a triple and a double. Abrams, in an ats two-run six, had a one-out triple to the right center field gap. And Abrams, in an ats one-run eight, had a leadoff opposite field double to left field. Uh, here is your C.J. Abrams slash line over six games as the Nats' number one batter. Batting average of 480, <laughs> on base percentage of 500, slugging percentage of 720. Yes, the sample size is small, but that is quite a tasty sample uh, with CJ Abrams in that number one spot. Uh, the Nats' previous regular number one batter, Lane Thomas, he has been bumped down to being the Nats' number two batter. Uh, Thomas was an Nats' starting right fielder and number two batter in each of these three games at, uh, actually, Lane Thomas's former team, right, the Cardinals. Uh, Thomas, over the three games, went a combined two for 11 with three walks, but the two hits were good hits. The 7-5-10 inning win in the rain suspended game. Thomas, in an Nats' two-run 10th, had a tie-breaking opposite field RBI single through the right side of the infield on an 0-2 pitch Pitch for a 6-5 Nats lead and the 9-6 loss on Saturday night. Thomas in an ad's two-run ninth had a double to left field. Uh, Lane Thomas is number one among all qualified Nats in OPS for this regular season at 8-38. Jamer Candelario is number two at 8-13. The Nats pitching and losing two or three games at the Cardinals was really bad. This series really was one of the worst pitched series by the Nats so far this season. And that is saying something, especially from a bullpen standpoint. i will get to the bullpen in a bit, but a rough start for Josiah Gray, In game three, Uh, the Nats' lone all-star for this season uh, did not pitch like an all-star in this 8-4 loss on Sunday afternoon. Four runs in five innings. He gave up 10 hits, a home run, a double, and eight singles. He issued a walk and a hit-by-pitch. He recorded just two strikeouts. He threw a lot of pitches, although he did throw a good number of strikes. Uh he over his five innings threw ninety-five pitches, sixty-one strikes versus thirty-four balls. Look, Josiah Gray overall is having a very nice step forward season, but he is putting a lot of guys on base and He in this game on Sunday afternoon put a truckload of guys on base. Gray began his outing with three scoreless innings despite putting two guys on base in each inning. Gray tossed a scoreless bottom of the first despite giving up a leadoff double and issuing a two-out hit by pitch. Gray tossed a scoreless bottom of the second despite giving up a leadoff single and a one-out single. And Gray tossed a scoreless bottom of the third despite giving up a leadoff single followed by issuing a walk. And then the runs came. Uh, Gray in the bottom of the fourth allowed Three runs on five hits, all of which were singles. And then Gray in the bottom of the fifth, allowed a run on a one-out full count solo homer by Nolan Gorman on a bomb to right field for a 4-1 Cardinals lead. Despite Gorman having been down in the count of 1.12, the homer went a projected 423 feet per stat cast. Uh, this was Davey Martinez during his post-game session with reporters on Sunday on Josiah Gray.
2: He couldn't really establish his fastball today. You know, he threw a lot more sliders, a lot more cutters. Um, so you know, but he, you know, he, he got out of some jams. You know, and gave us gave us all he had for five innings. Uh, you know, I thought that was enough. He had ninety five pitches. So. Um, but you know he he goes out there and like i said you know one of the things one of the things i know about Josiah and what he's learned is how to pitch in those moments and, and get out of situations like that you know i know they scored some runs today but early on i mean we could have been down really early and, and he fought to keep us in the game so uh, i'm proud of him for doing that you know i mean he didn't didn't have his, a great his great stuff today but he battled through
0: David they had four straight pretty soft hits in the fourth He's a lot more contact this year. So is there just some days where that might happen as a result of him just being a more contact guy this season?
2: Yeah, I th- you know, I think for, for the most part, you know, we talk about this all the time with him. When he establishes his fastball, you, you know, they, they, they got to be really, you know, sometimes when you don't have your fastball and they can sit, stay back on breaking balls, you'll see those hits like that. So uh, for me, it's, it's a combination of, you know, just him getting ahead, using his fastballs a little bit more, uh, and, then, and then using his breaking stuff to finish hitters off
0: you feel like was um, weems' biggest issue when he came in.
2: break, break he went he went straight through a slider. you know he didn't didn't really use his fastball that much neither. so um you know he's got and he's got a really good fastball. you know so he's you know he's got a, he's got a, again, you know attack with his fastball and then use his the secondary stuff, you know, but not today it was lot he threw a lot of sliders today.
1: yes, he did. Uh, Josiah Gray in this 2023 regular season, 19 starts, an ERA of 3.59. You like that. Again, he is having a step forward season, but his whip, his walks plus hits divided by innings pitched, now is at 1.47. He is averaging about one and a half walks plus hits per inning pitched. That's too high. And understand that this is the case, despite Gray having a pretty normal BABIP allowed, a uh, pretty normal batting average on balls in play allowed. His BABIP allowed is 306, so it's not like he has been victimized by a lot of bad luck on balls in play. But, you know, at least Josiah Gray on Sunday afternoon consumed five innings. The Nats starting pitchers over the first two games of this series at the Cardinals combined for just five and two-thirds innings, although in the case of Trevor Williams, Rain was the reason. Trevor Williams in that 7-5-10 inning win at the Cardinals in the Rain suspended game allowed one run in two and two-thirds innings in the portion of the game that was played on Friday night. He had five strikeouts in the two and two-thirds innings. He issued a walk and a hit by pitch. He only gave up one hit, uh, which was a two-out opposite field solo homer by Lars Nootbaar to left field on a one-two pitch in the bottom of the first for a one-nothing Cardinals lead. But Jake Irvin, he and the loss at the Cardinals on Saturday night was bad really for the first time in six starts since having his turn in the rotation skipped he had been a lot better he was not good on Saturday night four runs in three innings all four of the runs came in the bottom of the second he over the three innings gave up six hits a homer a triple and four singles he issued a walk and a hit by pitch he recorded three strikeouts. Uh, he threw a lot of pitches as he over his uh, mere three innings through 79 pitches, although they did consist of 51 strikes versus 28 balls. Uh, but because Williams and Urban combined for just the five and two-thirds innings over the first two games of the series, and because Josiah Gray lasted for just five innings on Sunday afternoon, a lot was asked of the Nats' bullpen in this series. And the bullpen did not respond well. Uh, Nats relievers over the three games at the Cardinals combined to allow 13 runs in 15 and a third innings. I mean, think about that. 13 runs in 15 and a third innings. And there were some hideous performances. The 8 4 loss on Sunday afternoon, Jordan Weems was charged with four runs in a third of an inning. He ended up being a 4 run 6 for the Cardinals, faced 5 batters, and got just one out, including giving up a 2 run homer by Paul Goldschmidt on a moonshot to center field for a 6 3 Cardinals lead. The homer went a projected 443 feet per stat cast. The 9 6 loss on Saturday night, Jose. A. Ferrer officially allowed two runs in a third of an inning. He was a mess and what ended up being a three-run fifth for the Cardinals. He faced five batters and got just one out. He began his appearance by giving up four consecutive two-out hits. And the 7-5-10 inning win in the rain-suspended game, Corey Abbott was the Nats pitcher to begin the resume portion of the game on Saturday afternoon. He allowed three runs in two and a third innings. Also in that rain-suspended game, The uh, adventures of Kyle Finnegan, who may well be back to being the Nats' number one reliever with Hunter Harvey poised to be out for a while. Uh, Finnegan, in that rain suspended game, a run in two innings. He, in the bottom of the eighth, gave up a game-tying two-out opposite field solo homer by Wilson Contreras to right center field on an 0-2 pitch. To tie the game at five, the homer went a projected 415 feet per stat cast. Finnegan and Harvey have given up some big homers this season, but Finnegan, to his credit, did then toss a perfect bottom of the ninth with two strikeouts to preserve the five-all tie in what did end up being the Nats' lone win in the series. Uh, Also, with the Nats over the last few days, something that should make you feel even better about The Nats now two Sunday nights ago, July 9th, taking LSU outfielder Dylan Cruz with the number two overall pick in the 2023 MLB draft. Uh, Baseball America on Friday morning came out with the outlet's updated top 100 prospects list off the 2023 MLB draft. The Nats had three top 100 prospects, including two of the top five prospects in baseball. Uh, Outfielder Dylan Cruz, the number four prospect, Outfielder James Wood, the number five prospect, and also third baseman slash shortstop Brady House, the number 94 prospect. Now, it is telling that two other significant Nats prospects, outfielders Robert Hassel third and Elijah Green, were not ranked among the top 100 prospects in baseball. Both guys are having rough seasons, but the Nats having two of the top five prospects in baseball is great. In case you're curious, the LSU starting pitcher, Paul Skeens, who the Pittsburgh Pirates took with the number one overall pick in the 2023 MLB draft and who many Nats fans wanted the Nats to get, uh, he was ranked as the number six prospect in baseball. So Baseball America does have crews higher than Skeens. And know this, uh, the number one prospect was Cincinnati Reds third baseman Ellie Dela Cruz, who actually is losing his prospect status. He is uh, graduating from a prospect status. So the Nats, in essence, have two of the top four prospects in baseball per baseball America. Next up for the Nats, a three-game series at the Chicago Cubs. Game one, Monday night at 8.05, Mackenzie Gore will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Game two, Tuesday night at 8.05, Patrick Corbin will be the Nats' starting pitcher. And game three, Wednesday night at 8.05, Trevor Williams will be the Nats' starting pitcher.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
1: Well, the hottest team in Major League Baseball is the Orioles. Yes, the Mose. Uh They now have won eight consecutive games, so much for getting cooled off by the All-Star break. The O's, since a stretch of six losses in seven games, have won eight Straight games as the O's over the weekend swept a three-game series against the National League wildcard-leading Miami Marlins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Friday night, a 5-2 win in a game uh, that did start an hour and six minutes late due to rain, but the win put the O's 20 games above five hundred before August in a regular season. For the first time since 1997. Think about that. Uh, Saturday night, a 6-5 win in a game in which the O's overcame a 4-0 second-inning deficit and a 5-3 fifth-inning deficit. And Sunday afternoon, a 5-4 win. As the O's, Joe Angel, again, (laughs) were in the win column.
4: And the Orioles, again, in the win column.
1: Ah yes, the win column, and oh so familiar place for the O's right now. The O's now are fifty-seven and thirty-five, second-best record in the American League. And don't look now, but the O's now are just one game behind the Tampa Bay Rays for the best record in the American League and for first place in the American League East. There is a lot of season left, but what a season the O's are having. This was O's manager, Brandon Hyde, during his postgame press conference on Sunday afternoon on whether he can allow himself to enjoy what the
4: O's are doing right now. I don't know if enjoy is the word. <laughs> I think um, I appreciate it. And I think these guys are doing an amazing job in a really tough league, and I'm really proud of how hard they're playing and I'm proud of how uh, they come to play and come to win every day and you know we have a lot of talent on our, in our especially in, our, in, our, in the hitting side right now, and the way guys are are kind of giving up a bats for others and sharing playing time a little bit. I think that that shows the character of our team. We're, we had a really talented team and I love to play everybody and these guys, everybody just wants to contribute every game. And so kind of how that mindset's going, I think that that's, I'm really happy about that, but like I've already kind of moved on to LA. Um, I was just talking about who we're facing tomorrow and th- thinking about Dodgers and how great that lineup is and how good that team is. And so it's a really a, a day-by-day process. I don't get a ton of time to enjoy s- small victories, I guess. Well,
1: the victory on Sunday afternoon did come rather close uh, to not being a victory. This 5-4 win over the Marlins on Sunday afternoon was nearly a disaster as a 5 nothing ninth-inning Orioles lead became a 5-4. Ninth inning Orioles lead. Uh, three Orioles relievers combined to allow four runs in just one and two thirds innings. Now, Brian Baker in the top of the eighth faced two batters and got two outs, but Eduard Bazzardo and Danny Coulomb, uh, they in the top of the ninth combined to allow four runs on three doubles and two singles. Uh, that was a scare. That the O's did not need, but the Orioles bullpen over games one and two of the series was terrific—a combined one run allowed in six and two-thirds innings. If you caught my conversation with Orioles fan Eric Arditi of Barstool Sports on this past Friday show, episode 610, you heard us talk about the Orioles starting pitching and the uh, up and down Jekyll and Hyde entity that the Orioles rotation has been this season. Well, the O's in this three-game sweep of the Marlins got really good starting pitching in two of the three games. Uh, Kyle Bradish in game three was outstanding uh, in being good to at least some extent for a seventh consecutive start. Bradish in the 5-4 win on Sunday afternoon tossed seven and a third scoreless innings with eight strikeouts. So he gave up Just three hits, a double, and two singles. He issued a walk and a hit by pitch. He threw a lot of strikes, 100 pitches, 71 strikes versus just 29 balls. Kyle Bradish is rolling. He, over his last six starts, has taken his ERA for this regular season from 425 to 305. Uh, This was Brandon Hyde during his postgame presser on Sunday afternoon on Kyle Bradish.
4: Really good. Gosh, um... He just had that one inning where he walked, he walked in and hit the guy, and um, besides that, was on cruise control, eight strikeouts. Um, this fastball was moving all over the place, sinkers to both sides, cutter. Uh, threw some more, more curveballs that second time through the order. Really good curveball today. It was uh, you know, on, a, on a day where we didn't have a couple of those relievers back in to be able to go that deep in the game. That's huge.
1: Yes, it is. Uh, Also very good in this series was Dean Kramer. Uh, Kramer in game one was at least decent for, by my count, the 11th time in 13 starts. Uh, You know, he hasn't been dominant necessarily in each of those 11 starts, but he has been at least decent in 11 of his last 13 starts. Kramer in the 5-2 win on Friday night was better than decent. One run in six innings with eight strikeouts. He gave up just two hits, uh, both of which were singles. He issued two walks and a hit by pitch. He threw 97 pitches, 60 strikes versus 37 balls. The improvement of Kyle Bradish and the improvement of Dean Kramer off each guy getting off to a rocky start to his 2023 season, huge. I mean, these guys lately have have been so good. The one bat outing for an Orioles starting pitcher in this series came from Kyle Gibson. He in game two struggled for a fourth time in five starts. Gibson in a 6 5 win on Saturday night allowed five runs in five and a third innings. However, there are some things that make the start look a little bit better uh, than that final line would indicate. Four of the runs came in one inning, uh, came in the top of the second. So beyond that inning, he was all right. And Gibson did fall victim to the variance of the batted ball. All nine of the hits. That he gave up were singles. So there was some bad luck involved in his outing. He issued two walks and a wild pitch. He recorded just one strikeout. So that does speak to him pitching to contact and making himself prone uh, to falling victim to the variance of the batted ball. Gibson threw 84 pitches, 52 strikes versus 32 balls. Uh, Also, for the O's in this three game sweep of the Marlins, more good hitting. Now, Uh, Cedric Mullins is hurt again. He and the 6-5 win on Saturday night as the Orioles starting center fielder and number six batter, one for one with an RBI single, but he left the game due to right quadriceps tightness. Uh, Mullins did not play on Sunday afternoon, he was on the 10-day injured list from May 30th to June 24th due to a right groin strain. He had been doing better of having struggled upon coming off the 10-day IL. I mentioned him having the RBI single on Saturday night. Well, Mullins in the 5-2 win on Friday night as the Orioles' starting center fielder and number six batter, three for four with a solo homer, two singles and a stolen base. But the Orioles' offense in this series delivered. Uh, The 6-5 win on Sunday afternoon, the O's totaled five runs on just five hits. Uh, Hal, Well, three of the five hits were extra base hits, and the O's worked three walks and went two for five with runners in scoring position. Anthony Santander, he on Sunday afternoon as the Orioles' starting right fielder and number three batter, one for three with a two-run homer and a walk. Uh, Santander ended Orioles' three-run first, a two-run homer to center field for a three nothing Orioles lead. The Homer winner projected 428 feet per stat cast. Uh, Santander also was productive in the 6 5 win on Saturday night. He, in that game, as the Orioles starting first baseman and number three batter, went 2 for 4 with two RBI singles, including a tie breaking went out first pitch RBI single to deep right field for a 6 5 Orioles lead in a 2 run Orioles seventh. Uh, the O's in that game totaled 6 runs, 11 hits, and 2 walks, went 4 for 10 with runners in scoring position. Gunner Henderson on Saturday Saturday night as the Orioles starting third baseman and number eight batter, one for three with a solo homer and a walk. He, in that Orioles two-run seventh, had a game-tying first-pitch leadoff homer to right field to tie the game at five. Uh, And the O's, in their 5-2 win on Friday night, totaled five runs, 11 hits, and two walks and went 2-for-10 with runners in scoring position. Eight of the Orioles' 11 hits in that game came from just three players. uh, Adam Frazier, Cedric Mullins, and Ryan O'Hearn. I mentioned what Mullins did. Adam Frazier on Friday night. What a game. Uh, He is the Orioles' starting second baseman and number eight batter. Went 3-for-4 with a two-run homer, a solo homer, and an RBI single. Uh, The two-run homer was big. A two-out, full-count, two-run homer to right field for a 5-2 Orioles lead in the bottom of the eight. How about the home run hitting Adam Frazier this season? Uh, Frazier in this regular season now has a career-best 12 home runs. He, over the three previous regular seasons, 2020 through 2022, totaled just 15 homers. The O's this past December signed Frazier as a free agent to a one-year $8 million contract. Uh, Quite the nice move by Orioles Executive Vice President and General Manager Mike Elias and Ryan O'Hearn on Friday night. Speaking of nice moves by Mike Elias, right? Ryan O'Hearn was acquired via trade with the Kansas City Royals this past January. The O's for O'Hearn gave up cash, so the O's essentially purchased O'Hearn and like all this guy has done for the O's this season is produce at the plate. Well, O'Hearn on Friday night as the Orioles' Starting first baseman and number four batter, two for two, with a double, a single and a walk. Uh, next up for the O's, a three-game series against the National League West-leading Los Angeles Dodgers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. And looky, looky at who is set to be the Orioles starting pitcher in Game 1. Uh, game 1 Monday night at 7.05, Grayson Rodriguez will be the Oriole starting pitcher. Uh, yeah, Grayrod being called back up to the majors. We found out about this On Sunday morning, the O's took Grayson Rodriguez out of a high school in Texas with the number 11 overall pick in the 2018 MLB draft. The O's, this past March 27th, Optioned Rodriguez to AAA Norfolk off him, having had a terrible exhibition season. But the O's on April 5th, as the corresponding roster moved to placing starting pitcher Kyle Bradish on the 15 day injured list with a right foot contusion, recalled Rodriguez from A Norfolk. He, at the time, per MLB pipeline, was the number seven prospect in baseball and the number two pitching prospect in baseball. But things did not go so well for Greyrod at the Major League Level. Ten starts, an ERA of 735, a whip of 172. And so the O's on May 27th announced that they had optioned Rodriguez to Triple-A Norfolk, but he for Norfolk did do some very good things. In fact, Rodriguez on July 6th was named International League Pitcher of the Month. So hopefully things for Greyrod in his uh, second go round at the major league level go better than they did in his first go round. Uh, the O's in calling Greyrod Back up to the majors are moving Cole Irvin to the bullpen at least for now. Uh, You know, uh, during our national segment, said that Baseball America this past Friday morning came out with the outlets updated top 100 prospects list off the 2023 MLB draft. Uh, Well, the O's had eight of the top 80 prospects in baseball, and among them was Grayson Rodriguez. But how about that? Eight of the top 80 prospects in baseball, or Orioles prospects. Uh, shortstop Jackson Holiday, the number two prospect. Outfielder Colton Kowser, the number 14 prospect. Starting pitcher Grayson Rodriguez, the number 15 prospect. Third baseman Kobe Mayo, the number 34 prospect. Infielder Jordan Westberg, the number 48 prospect. Catcher Samuel Basayo, the number 61 prospect. Outfielder Heston Kerstad, the number 68 prospect. And shortstop slash second baseman Joey Ortiz, the number 79 prospect. Uh, as for the rest of the Orioles' three-game series against the Dodgers, Game 2 Tuesday night at 7.05, Tyler Wells will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And Game 3 Wednesday afternoon at one oh five, Dean Kramer will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 612. We'll have plenty for you on the Commanders. Also, we'll talk Nationals and Orioles. And that's on Monday night at 8.05 of Game 1 of a three-game series at the Chicago Cubs. The O's on Monday night at 7.05 of Game 1 of a three-game series against the Los Angeles Dodgers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. So, have a great rest of your Monday, and we'll talk to you